Welcome back to Season 3 of the RSM River Mechanics Podcast. I didn't realize when I reached out to this episode's guest just how much his approach to sediment and science fit with the themes and project of this podcast. But in retrospect, maybe I should have. Dr. Marcelo Garcia holds an endowed chair in hydraulics at the University of Illinois Urbana, where he's taught for over 20 years and runs the remarkable Venti Chow Hydraulic and Sediment Laboratory. I think it would take about a third of the podcast runtime to list his accomplishments and honors, but his award page reads like a who's who of the legends of our field. These include, but are not limited to, the Einstein Award, the Rouse Award, and the Yalen Lifetime Achievement Award. Plus, he's a distinguished member of the American Society of Civil Engineers and an elected fellow to the American Geophysical Union. And that's all very impressive. But the quality that made this conversation remarkable is Marcella's grasp and deep connection with the history of the sediment transport and river mechanics disciplines. It became clear that he sees his work in continuity with the foundational work and scientists that preceded him. And he has an uncanny ability to describe how modern sediment transport principles and puzzles are rooted in the work and lives of our discipline's historic figures. I was also struck by Marcelo's eye for the human dimension of science. It's remarkable how often our conversations about science came back to stories about the people who made the discoveries. And while these are just some of the big themes I'd hoped for in this podcast, Part of the reason I'm doing this is to help us, including myself, understand our scientific heritage, to see our work in the context of a deep history of discovery, and to help us connect to that bigger story. But I also think we underrate the human side of science, the extent to which scientific beliefs and discoveries are contingent on historical and human events and converging communities. Marcel's perspective on our discipline is infused with both of those themes. It always made sense to me that the American Society of Civil Engineers asked Marcello to edit the sedimentation handbook that ostensibly gives this first conversation as topic and structure. But as we discussed the characters and events of 100 years of sediment science, I honestly could not imagine someone more suited to the 10-year task of pulling together a comprehensive summary of our field. Oh, and Marcello's story about how he got into sediment as a young college student caught between global powers is worth the price of admission on zone. I'm Stanford Gibson, Sediment Specialist for the Corps of Engineers and the Hydrologic Engineering Center, and this week on the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, a conversation about the characters and lives behind the ASCE Sedimentation Manual with Dr. Marcelo Garcia. Marcelo Garcia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in your ASC Distinguished Member Acceptance Speech, you said that you started your research at a very young age, on erosion on the Paraná River. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened and what you learned from it? When I was about uh, 20 years old, uh, I was in third year of college, and my dad worked for the car industry, and he had worked for General Motors and Renault and, and then Fiat, and the car industry wasn't in very good shape, and I decided that I was going to tried to get a job to help my family. I took an exam and started to work at the uh, National Water and Power Energy Company. It was a state-run company. And what happened that was interesting, they were working on the design of a large multi-purpose hydropower project that was going to be located on the Paraná River, more precisely on the so-called uh, Chapeton Island, only a few kilometers from where uh, my home was. So this was an, a great opportunity to learn, but what really changed things for me was that we are talking about the 1970s, the Carter administration put an embargo on the Soviet Union, so they needed grains, they needed goods, and they started to buy a lot from Argentina, but on the other hand, Argentina wasn't really buying much from the Soviet Union. So the decision that was made at the time to sort of balance the trade between the two countries was to bring a group of engineers, of specialists, that worked for Hydro Project. So Hydro Project was a state-run agency that basically took care of all the hydropower developments in the Soviet Union. And also, they did quite a bit of work on the satellite countries. They sent a group of 50 experts, basically in all the disciplines involving civil engineering and water resources, 
and ecology and so forth. To stay in Santa Fe for a period of about two years, many of them came with their wives and they stayed there. So I was working at the time in the downtown uh, office and uh, one of my bosses uh, came and said that there was this opportunity to go to the new hydraulics lab that was just starting. And the lab came to be between an agreement between my university where I was studying and the water and power uh, company. This was perfect because I thought, well, I can go to work. And then when I'm done with work, all I have to do is just go into whatever class I'm taking. So it was an ideal arrangement. And that's when I met uh, Dr. Gertrude Onipchenko, which was an expert on physical modeling. And also he had quite a bit of knowledge on mathematical modeling, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. There was one project in particular, one of the things that we had to do, which was to study the potential erosion of clay. So if you go to the Paraná River, you have a cover on the bottom of the river of about 15 to 20 meters of sand. And underneath that, you have mainly clay. So there's like sand bed forms right. on top of a clay right. substrate. Right. So there is quite a bit of sand, but also at some depth, you start to see clay. Okay. These are like green clays and are typical of the Paraná River. So there was a concern that when, you know, you build a dam and you put the spillway, there was a potential for water going down with very high uh, velocities. And this cover will be gone. And then the whatever material that you have in the substrate could be eroded by the flow. Will the clay underneath the sand erode if sand is If there? it was exposed yeah. to flow. We had a lot of people working in the field doing a lot of drilling and taking core samples. And those core samples were used to do the typical geotechnical analysis but also they were used to do tests like we wanted to do. So Dr. Onichenko developed a protocol based on what he had done before, and that protocol basically dictated how we were going to handle the samples because, as you can imagine, once you get them from a cover of 20, 25 meters of sand, well, now they decompress. So we had to basically cover them with paraffin, we take them to the lab, and then we use only the inner part of them. We put them on a board. And then we ran water over them and we tried to see for a certain depth of water, what is the flow velocity that is going to cause erosion. So like an early sed flume test, kind of. Kind of like yeah. an early sed flume test with the caveats that we didn't have a lot of local experience with this. Yeah. But also this was unusual in the sense that you were not dealing with sediments that you could see on an everyday basis, but rather these were you know, sediments that were deep into the soil or the bed of the river, basically. The only reason anyone would see these is that you've drilled them up, basically. Yes, if you drill them up. So we did the testing. You know, we came up with the mean velocity for one meter of depth. What would be the mean velocity? And we came up with, you know, about a meter per second was the velocity. Once, you know, we set up the samples and we let them in water overnight in the flume where we were going to do the testing just to make sure that they were well... um, soaked and then in the morning we would run one day when i came back in the morning and i look at the samples some of the samples had disintegrated and so to my surprise there was no flow so just in contact with the water upon further uh, studies we found out that basically some of the clays not all of them but some of them were what you call dispersive clays so basically they have such a mineralogical content that they in contact with water if they are not compressed, they basically they disaggregate. So the only reason they were holding together as a solid is that they were buried and under they were pressure. Buried. So as you can imagine, that's, that was not very good news because <laughs> it, what it means is that, well, yeah, if for any reason they get exposed to water and then you have these flows, then you could have a, a scour hole and an area that would develop and would basically could undermine the foundation of, of the structure. So it was, a, it was a very important finding. Dr. Renichenko, not only he was a mentor, he was the one that initiated me on research. Mm. Somehow he saw that I had an affinity to do experiments, mm. that I, I like to do experiments. But two things happened. One was that we were doing a, a study that had not been done before. So there was no record of somebody having done this, and there was no record about a foreign country coming and providing advice via, you know, a state agency. Yeah. So one of the things that happened is that, you know, at that time we knew that they were under a, a communist regime. Yeah. So we knew that the translators, for instance, they were they were KGB agents. <laughs> we knew that. But everybody was very nice. 
And then uh, we also got a military government. We had a dictatorship. In so, Argentina. Yeah, so it was kind of crazy in a way because here we go, we bring expert advice from the Soviet Union when the government, our own government, is we had a dictatorship. It was very much against anything that might look like coming from the left. So a lot of people disappeared and a lot of bad things happening. Oh, wow. It was unusual to see this, but... They have so much experience, the Soviets, in the Volga River that was very similar to the Paraná in terms of the flow and all that, that, you know, they brought them in. But then one day we were talking with Dr. Nipchenko about the erosion studies, and he looked at me and he didn't want to talk in English. He always tried to talk in Spanish. But he said, you have to prepare yourself because you are young. And when we leave, people are going to come and they're going to attack these results. They're going to question, how did you come up with this, you know? And you'll be the one left to defend it. And, they, and you will be the one that has to defend it. And long and behold, that happened. Our agency used to bring in consultants to look at the things that we were doing. So they brought an earth dam expert by the name of... Raúl Marsal. So Raúl Marsal was an Argentinian that had got his degrees at MIT in soil mechanics and geotech. And then he became very, very prominent uh, in Mexico. He was a professor. He had his own company. He wrote books about earth dams. So he was very well known. So he came to re review the whole project. The whole project was going to have a lateral air dam that was like 200 kilometers now long. And now we know that that could have been a disaster yeah. because it could have been isolated from an environmental point of view, right. ecological point of view. It could have been catastrophic. And so, yeah, the dam didn't get built. No, yeah. the dam didn't yeah. get built. On the one hand, that's good, but it also was good to learn all the things that yeah. we learned. Right. But if the dam could have been built, it could have been yeah. a disaster, truly. But this person came in, and he was very well-known, you know, he was very well-established. So all the people above me, you know, here we are in the lab, and we start to talk, so we all go by the flume, where I have the clay samples, and, you know, we, we start to talk, and everything started okay. So everybody's kind of around. I don't know, I think I was 22 at the time, maybe less, because I graduated at 22. So we started to talk, and he started to ask me how I did the test, and we keep going, and eventually I said, well, the maximum admissible velocity that this clay can take before it erodes, you know, a meter per second. And he said, well, you know, that can be right, because we have been doing all these studies in Mexico, and actually the velocity is... Some other number. Yeah, know. right. So we keep going, like, back and forth. And you're 21. Yes. And he's an expert. Yeah, so this thing keeps building up. And I say, well, you know, it could be that the mineralogical content of the clays here in the Panana, you know, they came to be in a different way. You know, in fact, everything in Santa Fe was under the ocean at some point. Maybe this is different from what you see, you know, up in Mexico. Uh, well, no, well, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, the level of the discussion yeah. keeps increasing. And I could see in the eyes of the people surrounding me, my bosses, that they were beginning to get nervous. I wasn't backing down from my position. And, and then it kept going, I kept going until at one point I said, you know, Dr. Marcel, that the velocity profile is like this. And then when you get to the bottom, it, it's zero, right? There is no sleep there. And then he exploded. He turned red in anger. Okay, because he took this as, you know, as a lack of respect yeah, right. for me, which wasn't my intention, right, right. but I was just trying to tell him how we did it. So he said, young man, you should know that I took fluid mechanics from Professor Reynolds at MIT, and I know how this is and this, that. And then I decided, well, I better don't say anything else. <laughs> Then uh, he kind of calmed down. I didn't say nothing more. But Dr. Onichenko had predicted it yeah. happened. So they all went away. The delegation went away. And then my boss came around and said, Marcelo, you just couldn't stay quiet, could you? <laughs> I said, well, you know, here there is a person that is an expert. And obviously he knows a lot more than I do. He had written books on, yeah. on, on earth uh, dams. You know, he was already famous, well-established. But... We are the ones that did it, so we know how we did it. You know, it's not like, well, somebody told me how to do it. No, 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 no. We did it, and we did it with an expert, which was Dr. Nipchenko. And I have to say, he wrote a letter of recommendation for me to go to Minnesota, Minnesota. and I know that that letter was read 
by the higher ups in Hydro Project and it caused him a travel. I have a note from him saying one of the reasons why I couldn't go back to Argentina like a couple of years after was because of that, because I, I help you with the letter and a recommendation. Oh, so it, it cost it him. It cost him some, yes. To write you a letter. Yeah, wow. to write the letter and open the door. So I had three letters and one was from him, from Dr. Onipchenko, and then one was from Alfonso Pujol, who was my professor of fluvial hydraulics. And the other one was from Juan Carlos Alarcón, which was my mathematics professor, mm -hmm. which I love him uh, very much. Yeah. One of the interesting things that happened with Dr. Onipchenko was that he also helped me do experiments to look at the closure of the river. So we basically mimicked in the lab, in a model, a scale of 1 to 42, the closure of the river with rocks and tetrapods and all that from a small barge. So this was a sectional model. We did two of those for the main branch of the Paraná and then one for the Zapata River. Even though I had not got my degree yet in engineering, there were other engineers around, but he allowed me to do that. So it was a great experience. So one day we were looking for a coefficient, a head loss coefficient, and he pulls out this book in Russian and he's flipping through it. And all of a sudden I, I recognize one of the pictures and sure enough, was Open Channel Hydraulics by Vente Chao, <laughs> which had been translated to Russian. So he had it in Russian. And I knew the book because I had used the book in my Open Channel Hydraulics class. That was an interesting moment because yeah. it was like a like a message in a way yes. there, you know. Because now you're the director of the Venti Chao right. Hydraulics Lab right. here right. in Illinois. Right. Looking back, that was a special moment. In a way, I knew about the University of Illinois because of that book. But, I, you know, what I didn't know is that one day I would, you know. <laughs> you would sit in the chair, yeah. the well, literal I would, chair. I would end up, uh, you know, coming here and, and being a professor here. Yeah, at Venti Chao's school, basically. Okay, so let's fast forward now many years. We'll go back and talk about a lot of the things yes. you did in the interim, but let's fast forward many years. You're one of the well-known sediment transport experts in the field. Can you just tell us what is ASC Manual of Practice 110? The manual is a monumental compendium <laughs> of the experience of many, many, many people that have worked on the field of sediment transport and sedimentation engineering in an attempt to try to find what are the, the best ways to uh, basically manage sediments, mm -hmm. the scale of the problems that can be addressed with the knowledge that it is contained in the manual, it's huge. It's very, very large. So when I started to work on the manual, I was basically on the sedimentation committee of ASCE, mm -hmm. and there had been a committee formed to basically update Manual 54, which was the manual originally edited by Vito Manoni. Now, the mechanics of that one have been very different because everything that went into the original, what we call now the classic, the sedimentation engineering manual, first it had been published in the Journal of Hydraulic Engineering and people have had a chance to write discussions, comments, in a way try to improve the material. When we did Manual 110, I was in the sedimentation committee, so I was asked by... Dick French and Jeff Bradley, they say, Marcelo, we've been working on this for quite a while now, but we don't seem to get there to finish it. When I took it, I have to confess, I was a little bit naive because <laughs> I thought that this was going to I just get a, a few people to help and we are going to be able to come up with a manual. That was a big underestimation for my part because I, I didn't realize that, that this was going to be such a huge effort. Yeah. So. A lot of stories because I started to say, well, we need to build upon what Banoni and, and others have done with the original manual. They have a lot of things that have happened. So when you look at the two manuals, what are the differences? Banoni's manual, it's a monumental piece of work. To this day, it still has a lot of information that is very, very useful. And that's why ASC republished it after some editing. Mm -hmm. This was published as a classic so Manual 54, that process was overseen by Vito Vanoni. Vito Vanoni and a committee of people. And for years, that was the text. The, the textbook. All the core algorithms are based on that. And so you were tasked with updating it. Right. But when you updated it, you also republished it because it's still right. a classic text. Yes. There was something that happened. Another thing I have talked about this until now, you know, 
as I mentioned to you, I went to Caltech yes. in 97, and I had not yet started to work on, on the manual, but I was being talked to about it. So I met Manoni, Professor Manoni, which was the nicest person you could meet. And Norman Brooks, who had been his student, was a person that had invited me. When we talked with Professor Brooks about the updating of the manual, he was the one that said, well, you know, Marcelo, it's going to be difficult <laughs> to improve upon this manual, you know. Right. And when you start to touch it and you start to move things around, you know, what is it going to happen? I started to think about it. And, you know, at the time I was 37 years old, I guess, 38. <laughs> I started to think about it and I said, you know, he's right. This manual is very idiosyncratic. Yeah. The way it's put together, the way the topics go, it's not what we see today. So that's when I started to think, well, maybe we need to republish the manual. And one of the problems was that ASE had lost the original oh, you know, no. <laughs> to everything. You know, and I got help from a lot of people. Bob MacArthur yeah. from NRC, who I right. worked with the court for a long time, together with Jeff Bradley and Dick French and, and a lot of other people that were there. But then obviously this was a change of direction. The committee that had been there up to that point, the idea was to retype all this, to improve. Oh, just to update. And then see which chapters could be improved. improved. I see. But that's a very difficult task because it's like doing surgery and something. Yeah. You have to keep the structure of the original. To keep the structure of the original. So there was an area, for instance, there is a chapter here on sedimentation law. And there were a lot of things that have happened in sedimentation law. Yeah. So, well, how do you do that? That's a rewrite, right. basically. That's a, that's a rewrite. So there were instances like that that, you know, led you to believe that, well, yeah, maybe this idea of republishing this and fixing some of the mistakes that can be there, there was something missing on the original, and that was the index. And Banoni, interestingly enough, had done an index, <laughs> but that didn't make it into oh, the original. So... We put the index on this one and the classic. So uh, it is there. And then we said, well, let's go with a whole new one. And then that was the second instance when I underestimated the gargantuan task in front of me. Can we get a few statistics on this? Okay, I'll ask you some maybe quick questions. Yes. How many chapters are in the new manual, 110? Yeah, about 20. 20, 20 chapters. Yes. Ballpark, how many contributors? Oh, we have about... About 60. 60 sediment experts contributed yes. to this manual. Yes. Pages? 1,200-something. Uh, Do you have a sense of how much it weighs? Yeah, about seven pounds. Seven yeah. pounds. <laughs> There's one person I know who actually has one of the old laptop tote bags dedicated to carrying it around. So maybe the most important statistic, how long did it take you and the team? At the end of the day, it ended up taking us... About a decade, you know. About a decade. Yeah. When I was invited to get mm -hmm. involved with it, it was around 98, 99. I ended up starting with it probably in 2000. I started to do some of the work. But this process of deciding to go from updating and modifying the original to going with a new one, it took some time. And what had happened is there had been a group of people that had already worked on the updating of, of this. And that group of people, as one can understand, you know, they were fairly frustrated. Yeah. I think it would be the word. Yeah. Some of the most well-known people, and one of them, for instance, was Stanley uh, Schum, who was a professor at Colorado State yeah. University, you know, one of the fathers of fluvial geomorphology. Mm -hmm. He had been working on a chapter. So when I contacted him, he said, no, Marcelo, you know, I worked on this for a long time mm -hmm. because it had been like eight years since yeah. he had started and I already put a lot of effort, you know, I'm not in very good health. And that was a little bit of a nightmare because I had to rekindle the interest of the people that had already worked on this. And at the same time, kind of bring in new people. I have a lot of happy anecdotes, but with Stanley Schum in particular and the chapter on engineering geomorphology, the biggest challenge that we had was people's lives were going on while we were doing all this including my own, you know, now looking back and looking at the names and everything, you know, you asked me about the names and the names, there were a lot of people involved. For instance, on engineering geomorphology, 
when I talked with, with Stan Shum the first time, he said, well, you know, I'm going to recommend someone from the Corps of Engineers mm -hmm. from Bisbur. And the person that Stan recommended was Lawson Smith. So Lawson Smith happened to be a graduate of the University of Illinois. So he got his undergrad here, and then he got his PhD over in uh, geology. So he was the one working on, on debris flows in Bisbur for the Corps and all that. So I went down there. I made with Lawson, and Lawson uh, prepared a, you know, an outline of what he was going to do, and it looked great. At the time, he had been involved with the mud flows and the landslides in Venezuela, so the court had sent him uh, down there. It was all great. You know, he was set up to do his chapter, and, and I came back, and we kept going with all the other chapters, with all the other authors, bring people, you know. I brought people to do turbulence and chapter on turbulence because there wasn't a lot of turbulence mm -hmm. in the original, but not turbulence and turbulence modeling had become... One of the big yeah, advances. Since, one of the big yeah. advances. So, you know, what six months went by and, and one day I, I said, you know, I haven't heard from Lawson and I'm going to write to him. So I, I sent an email and, and a few days later I, I get a, a message from his secretary with the court and said, Professor Garcia, we... We are sorry to say that mm -hmm. Lawson Smith has passed, you know. Mm. That was that was like a ton of bricks yeah. for me because he was a young person, had uh, twins, you know, young twins. This was, wow. I just couldn't, you know, couldn't believe it. I, I didn't know that, that he was ill and, and apparently this all happened very, very quickly. So there won my engineering geomorphology, chapter 18. I didn't know what to do and You know, there was some suggestions made. And, and then I, I just went back to Stanley Shum and said, Professor Shum, you know, this happened, unfortunately. And he said, okay, Marcelo, I'm, I'm going to help you and I'll do it. And he did. So he recruited Mike Carvey and they did it. So there were a lot of instances like mm -hmm. this, which was kind of like the human side of doing yeah. the manual, you know, like the chapter 20, American Sedimentation Law and Physical Processes. James Lawson with Doug Hamilton and Jerry Sherman, they were one of the first ones to do the, the revisions to the chapter. And they added a lot of material, so that had been sitting there. So I had to go back and kind of fire them up. And James Lawson, you know, he had been around for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, he was out there in California, working on a lot of cases involving month flows. But by the time we were about to finish the manual, he was very ill. He was literally on, oh, on his wow. deathbed, you know. So it was like, wow, you know, and we got it done. And it's a great chapter because a lot of things that happen with sedimentation hazards these days, you know, they have legal aspects. So they kind of brought up all the, the legal cases that have come up since Manuel 54. They hit the streets. And there is a lot of history here. American Sedimentation Law and Physical Process, Chapter 20. And they start by saying this chapter more than any other in the first edition of Manuel 54 This serves to be updated and expanded. As the population of the United States grows, there is more demand for government to provide infrastructure, regulatory objectives such as hazard mitigation and the environment. So they really did an outstanding job. This was a great chapter to have because they, they added all these. One of the things that happened, they acknowledge the contributions of, of an unpublished draft of a book piled by John Kussler, And this is basically the publication of that material. Right. Yeah. You know, when you ask me how many people work on yeah, this, right. it's a lot more than probably over a hundred people right. that in one way or another contributed to the manual. So 10 years, kind of the middle of your career, yes. but kind of as you've laid out, really lifetimes went into yes, this. Went by. Why did you think this project was so important that it, it constituted that level of effort really at the, at the well, heart of your career? There are a couple of things. First of all, as an undergrad, I had seen Manoni's manual in Santa Fe in Argentina. That's great. Because my professor, Alfonso Pujol, who I mentioned before, he went to University of Iowa. He took classes with Rouse. His advisor was Enzo Macanio, who also happened to be Argentinian. He already has exposed us to some of the chapters from the manual. So I knew that the manual existed. And then when I went to grad school at the University of Minnesota, St. Anthony Falls, that's when I learned more about the manual through my mentor, my advisor, Professor Gary Parker. Gary, interestingly enough, he had done a postdoc, a stay at Caltech for a very short period of time. He had visited. So 
he knew also about all this school. You know, when I, when I saw this, I was on the sedimentation committee and I did realize that this was a very, very important task because mm-hmm. it had been, well, about 25 years since the publication of the original and a lot of things have happened, particularly the role of morphology and morphodynamics had come more and more into the forefront, you know. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a sediment transport in a straight channel and a meandering stream? Mm-hmm. And what is the outcome of that, you know? Why do we get that shape? And why is it the apex of some meandering streams points downstream and sometimes 50% is upstream? And, and what does it seem from the, the point of view of the morphology that now you're transporting sediment, but you're not doing it in a uniform way like you would do it on a, on a straight canal. And, and what does it mean, uh, you know, to have gravel now? Much coarser material. So if you look at the original, there is very, very little on gravel. There is very little on mixtures. Let's talk initiation of motion, erosion of a sediment mixture. Well, the only formula that you're going to find in the original is the Egyasarov formula. But you're not going to find much more than that. So a few people like Gessler, Johannes Gessler, who ended up being a professor at, at Colorado State, but he did his PhD at ETH in Zurich. Yes, they have looked at the problem of, well, if I have a bed covered by a mixture of sediments and I have a flow going over it, what is going to happen? Well, now we know that the fine sediments were going to be entrained and then an armor was going to develop, you know. Some people call it a pavement, a coarser layer of material. When you say a mixture, you're talking about different sizes. Different a sizes. A lot of the early work in 54 was focused on a single size. More related to uniform size yeah. material because that was what we knew Yeah. at the time, you know. We were trying to learn, and most of the work was focused on uniform size yeah. uh, materials. When you look at the Shields diagram, for instance, the Shields diagram was based on uniform size material. And this was the experiments that Frank Shields did for his PhD in Germany. So when you look at the range of the original data, the range of the sediment sizes that he used for his experiments was constrained to sand, maybe some fine sand mm-hmm. and then a little bit of medium-sized sand. But it was basically anything between maybe two millimeters and 200 micros, somewhere there. Then people started to try to use that outside that range. And mind you that Shields' work was monumental, not just because of the detail of the experiments he did, but also because for the first time, he brought similarity into the picture and scaling. Can you just define what similarity is? Similarity is how do you look at the problem involving sediment transport, in this case, entrainment, and you figure out what are the variables and the parameters that are important, so that if you do an experiment to learn about a phenomenon, the data that you're going to get there, you're going to be able to extrapolate. It's transferable. Transferable to a real-life stream Mm -hmm. or sediment erosion in a canal or in a river. So the beauty of Shields experiments is that what we now call the Shields parameter or the particle Reynolds number, it has embedded in it you know, the shear velocity that is a fundamental parameter, a surrogate for bed shear stress that comes into all the problems that we do on sediment transport. And it's basically the fundamental parameter that you are trying to always figure out how much shear do we have at the boundary because that defines, well, whether or not you're going to have erosion, initiation of motion, and you're going to have transport. And whether that transport is going to be as bed load or is going to be in suspension. So what Shields did was basically in a very, very simple set of experiments, but very, very well conducted, figure out what are the important variables and use the variables to come up with this dimensionless diagram that now we use for a whole number of other things. And the whole story about the Shields' life, you know, he does his research in essentially what was Nazi Germany That's at right. the time, under very, very harsh conditions. And the late Professor John Kennedy from the University of Iowa tells his story, the Frank Shields story, in an ASE Journal of Hydraulic Engineering paper, but he comes back and starts to look for a place to continue with his work after his doctorate, and ends up going to Caltech at the time. So Caltech had, you know, a powerhouse at the time because von Karman was there, and Robert Knapp, who had been his student, was there, and Robert Knapp had been the advisor of 
Vito Vanoni and many of the people that came out of in hydraulics and fluid mechanics, but he doesn't realize that there is a soil conservation lab that is right there, and Hans Albert Einstein was there, Hunter Rouse was there, Vito Vanoni was just starting there. There were all these people. At the Caltech campus. At the Caltech all campus. All these legends were just all these legends down the hall. Were, were not legends yet, but they were there. So Rouse, that's where he did his famous turbulence uh, jar experiments. And that's where Einstein did experiments too with a flume. And that was a flume that later on, the Einstein flume that Norman Brooks used his PhD under Vanoni to look at bed forms and the changes of bed forms and, and found the hysteresis and all that. So all these people were there, but unfortunately, Frank Shields doesn't know that. So the visit doesn't get him too far because he ends up meeting the folks that were in the aerospace area oh, or the aeronautics area, yeah. you know, where von Karman was with his uh, disciples at uh -huh. the time. He misses all that. So he ends up going back to the New York, New Jersey area where he was from, and he ends up going into the textile manufacturing field. At this point, it looks like his scientific career is a failure. It is for yeah. him. Yeah. Yes. Just a disappointment of circumstance. Yes, unfortunately it is. But he ends up reaching prominence, Frank Shields, because Hunter Rouse, who was a great scholar, ends up finding out about Shields' thesis. He has it translated by somebody at Caltech. Into English, because it was just in German. And Hunter Rouse knew German. Oh, okay. Because he had spent time in Germany. Like so many of the early hydrologians at the time that did sediment transport and hydraulics. But the work of Shields rich prominence in because Rouse found it, he brought it up, and it was Rouse, the one that actually draw the curve, like oh. I is explained in the manual, that we see there. And this is the curve for initiation of motion. Initiation if, of motion. If the dimensionless parameter is above the curve, particles move, right. and if it's below, it doesn't. Yes. So this famous curve was in manual 54. Right. But just for example, in your chapter in Manual 110, you reproduce right. the curve, right. but then you add lots of different lines for right. suspended versus right. bed load and gravel river versus sand bed river. And it's a great example of how the fundamental research in 54 hasn't changed, but so much more has happened. Right. So what we try to do in, in 110 is basically make the connection between those very fundamental experiments. Because a, a lot of people came and built upon the Shields diagram. Professor Yalin, for instance, in Canada, he did a lot of work with his students using glycerin to change the thickness of the viscous sublayer mm -hmm. so he could do experiments with very, very fine particles that behave in a granular way. So he went like to the left of the shield diagram. <laughs> right. There was a lot of work then to do this, but then what we try to do in the diagram is put the connection between that fundamental work on erosion and entrainment of sediment, everything that had happened in between, but also connected to real rivers. So Shields did the experiments in the lab. So one of the questions is, does the Shields theory and experiments, does it stand with yeah. rivers? And yes, the answer is, it does. Well, how do we know that? Well, because we went and we got data from rivers and we put it on the diagram. And then you can see a very clear distinction between sand-bedded rivers and gravel bed streams. And you can also see there is a lot of scatter in the data when you look at gravel bed streams because, well, now you're dealing with a range of sizes and there are a whole bunch of phenomena that show up when you have a mixture of sizes, you know, like hiding effects and armoring that mm -hmm. we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot more difficult to entrain a fine sediment particle where it is surrounded by coarser particles that to entrain that fine particles when it's surrounded by its brethren, you know. Yeah, a fine particle in different settings behaves very differently. It behaves very differently. Which is part of the big update between 54 and 110. Right, right. So now we have the, the Shields diagram, and that's why you also call it the Shields... Banoni-Parker diagram, yes. because Vito Banoni was uh, the one that said, oh, maybe the parameter that we use in the bottom axis 
we can actually recombine it to have something that is more like a particle Reynolds number that doesn't involve the shear velocity. So there is a transformation that one can make of mm -hmm. the variables, which is in the manual, and you can do that. And then it was Gary Parker, the one that said, well, you know, maybe we can do like a river diagram using Shields experiments and Banoni change of parameters. We come along and we say, okay, we're going to add more data to this. And that's why we have the field where you have suspension versus non-suspension and below. The gratifying thing is to see that all this is confirmed. And that's why similarity, dimensional analysis, they are important because they tell you what are the important parameters that you need to take into account. So the reason you were asked, I'm sure, is because you were considered one of the leaders in the field and you're up to date on all this literature. But I imagine in the course of editing a thousand pages, you learned a couple of things. Were there a couple of insights that you learned over the course of editing this, maybe fields that were adjacent to your main fields that have maybe changed the way you think about sediment or rivers? I think I learned a lot and there were a lot of things that I look at them from a different point of view. At the time, I have been doing, and I still do, stream restoration work. Well, when you look at stream restoration work, yeah, the mechanics of sediment transport, which is you know what has motivated me for a long time, right. it is important, but you also need to bring that with the morphology of the stream or what is it that you're trying to do. So one of the things that I think that the manual contributes thanks to the folks that work on that, on those chapters. People like Ron Copeland and Doug Shields and all these folks that are more on that area. We have a chapter on meandering also by Jacob Bodgar mm -hmm. and Jorge Abad. What do you learn from all this? Well, people talk about stream restoration. What, what does it mean? When you look at Illinois, something like 4,000 miles of streams were channelized, you know, in the yeah. 60s and the 70s. 4,000. Yeah, something like 23% of the stream length have been straighten out. Just in the state of Illinois. Just in the state of Illinois. A lot of channelization, you know, where people will come and say, well, you know, we need to drain this field. And the most infamous case is the Kankakee River between Indiana and... Because that's not a stream. That's, that's a major... Well, it's a river. Yeah. So, and it got channelized with some major effects yeah. on the Illinois side. Well, when you want to do stream restoration, you need to know about river meandering. You need to know about mechanics of sediment transport. You need to know things that are not necessarily you know about all of them. What is the influence of vegetation, for instance, on the banks? Well, it's not the same. You know, sediment doesn't get eroded and transported on the margins the same way that mm. it does on the bottom. So there are all these things that we need to look into, but done a lot of work with Eddie, Eddie Langendon. Yeah. We go way back with him because he was one of the first that supported me with RBR Meander, with mm. the first code that we had to look basically how do we re-meander. And because Eddie had done a lot of work on stream bank erosion and how developed these concepts uh, model for bank erosion, taking more into account the soil mechanics of the banks and all that, when did we look at that you know, in, a, in a sediment transport class, you know, the soil mechanics of the banks? But, but you need to account for that. You might have some cohesive material, you might have some gravel, some sand, so you don't have a homogeneous condition anymore. So the material that you have on the bottom of the stream is not the same as you have on the banks. Yeah, that's going to change the picture. And now if you have curvature, well, what is going to be the distribution of shear stresses on the margins, on the bank? So now you have all these elements. You know, what is the role of secondary flow? How do these secondary flows change with channel curvature? What are the implications for the transverse slope? Where are you going to find the most coward? When somebody comes and, and says, oh, we're going to put wind dams or we're going to put, you know, berms or dikes or what have you. Well, how is that going to interact with the flow? And how is it going to do it? And the sediments, how is mm -hmm. it going to do it for different flow conditions? What I learned from the manual is that there is a universe of challenges out there. And what I hope is that people using the manual, students are going to take the time to try to learn from the manual and not try to learn it all at once because it's not easy to digest. Right. But they're going to try to learn from what is there and they're going to pick up, they're going to build on it. And, you know, maybe many, many years from now, somebody will be able to do some updates right. 
But there is a tremendous amount of material to learn from here and, and harvest that knowledge from people that are really experts in what they wrote. And it covers things in such a way that you can use some of the material to teach a course, one or two chapters to look at sediment transport itself, for non-cohesive materials, yeah. for gravel. Then we have a chapter on cohesive materials, mm -hmm. or fine-grained materials, if you want to call it that way, by Ashish Mehta and Bill McAnally. You know, we got the best people we could get. So I have a digital copy of this, and I have a physical copy of this. And I went and I counted the number of Post-it notes I have and bookmarks I have. I have 18 bookmarks in my hard copy version. I think that... Chapter three, Graded Sediment Transport by, by Dr. Parker. I think I've read that six to eight, maybe 10 times. The whole manual has been helpful to me, but there are parts of the manual I go back to again and yes. again. And I realize that probably the answer to what are your favorite chapters are, I love all my children equally, but are there parts of the manual that you find yourself going back to again and again? This is going to sound strange. I keep going back to my own chapter because I, because I use it a lot. It's a chapter that I use a lot for teaching yes. purposes. I think that if I taught a introductory sediment transport class, I would consider using your chapter as the text. I get a lot of requests from colleagues that teach sediment transport or teach a class in, on river sedimentation, and they ask me, you know, can I use your chapter? And I say, of course, yes, because it's laid out in that way. Yeah. And you don't have to cover the whole thing because there is also turbidity currents and the relation between rivers, sediment transport in a river and a turbidity current. And there is enough there to do a course with different degrees of, of depth. Mm -hmm. And then there is obviously Gary Parker's chapter, which it's a condensation from the outmost expert on gravel bed streams. You know, Gary got his PhD in 1974, 1975, under Alvin Anderson, who was also a prominent figure in sediment transport, my academic grandfather. So he had no, no saying on Manual 54, but his PhD was on river meandering and stability of streams. And it, and it was an incredible piece of work because I think he had no more than 40 pages. Mm. He wrote his equations at the time by hand, but it was a masterpiece. Yeah because that work ended up being in the Journal of Fluid Mechanics. And, and he took a job at the University of Alberta. I didn't know that. So he spent five years in Alberta. And in Alberta, I guess he was exposed to gravel bed streams up in Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's when he started to go into uh, gravel transport. I imagine that this was almost for him, for someone with his ability and his skills, for, you know, mathematical analysis and mechanics. This was like entering uh, Narnia, you know. <laughs> yeah, he finds this whole universe of gravel bed streams. But in doing so, he's the one that actually walks through these and starts to figure out what are the things that we need to know. So one of the things that is in the manual is this whole idea that up to that point, up to the mid-70s, when people look at gravel bed streams or streams with coarse materials, most of the knowledge came from Europe, you know, yeah. from uh, Switzerland, from the Alps. Mayor Peter Müller, mm -hmm. you know, Hans Albert Einstein had done his PhD there in 1935 ish, 36 in Zurich, but there was a lot of interest, you know, Strickler's work mm -hmm. on how to characterize roughness. It was all coarse material, but nobody had really thought about the implications of, you know, what happens when you have a stream covered with a range of sizes. So what everybody was thinking of, and that's why Johannes Hessler ended up doing his PhD on that, was, well, what is the probability that you're going to entrain material of a certain size? What is going to be the size distribution of the material that you're going to leave behind? So there was the idea of, of armoring, but this is what we call static armory. So here comes Gary Parker and says, well, now, wait a minute. When we go to gravel bed streams, you know, you look at them and you say, well, what is going on here? Because we are transporting all these sizes of material. And yet, when you look at a gravel bed stream, there is a, a layer, you know, if you go with a shovel there and excavate, well, you see that there is a, a layer there that has a thickness that scales with the size of the coarsest material. And then you see the substrate and you see a whole range of sizes, which is being protected by that layer. Then you ask the question of, 
Well, what is going on there? So when you look at the Kankakee River, a sandbed mm -hmm. stream that we just mentioned with channelization, you see a very, very uniform size distribution. This is in the manual in page 43, the word by Nani Bomic. The mean size, the D50, is 300 microns, 0.3 millimeters. But then you go to Oak Creek in Oregon, mm -hmm. where Bob Milhouse did a lot of work with mm -hmm. Pete Klingemann, And now you look at grain sizes that go anywhere from 200 microns all the way up to 200 millimeters. That's 20 centimeters at eight inches. Then you say, well, what is the dynamics of all this? You know? And then you see the work of white. You can have a whole range of grain sizes. Yeah. And, and I think the question that Gary tried to understand was, well, how can you transport all these sizes? And how is it that you have a, a layer that he ended up calling the active layer, you know, the layer that exchanges sediment with the flow and with the bed. And depending on whether you have erosion or you have aggradation, that is going to change because you're going to be taking material from the substrate and put it into motion, or you're going to be going the other way. You're going to be adding material yeah. to the substrate and the active layer is going to move up. So he came up with this brilliant idea of equal mobility. The concept of equal mobility, when you think about it, is disarmingly simple, but it's not easy to come up with. Can you describe the yeah. equal mobility so what hypothesis? What equal, what equal mobility means in a stream having a wide range of sizes, all the sizes are going to get transported at the same rate. And this abstraction is not easy to make. Yeah, this is very counterintuitive. You're saying that a eight millimeter gravel particle will have the same transport rate as a 0.5 millimeter sand particle. Yes, but what that means is that what streams do, they develop a dynamic armor layer, okay? So now we are talking about not static armoring, but we are talking about something that is dynamic. Dynamic in what sense? Well, because of this idea of equal mobility, then what we are saying is that the reason why you have coarser material in more abundance on that armor layer, on that active layer, is because if all the particles are going to be moved at the same transport rate, well, the coarser particles are harder to move than the finer ones. So, The only way to have equal mobility is you have more coarser particles exposed than finer particles on the same layer. So this idea helps define a sediment transport equation, which is what Gary does, that actually accounts for different grain sizes. And how you can transport all the grain sizes while you maintain this coarse cover layer. Right. Well, you maintain that active layer that has predominantly coarser material in it. That also affects sampling because if yes. you sample just the surface or if you sample just the subsurface or if you just take a shovel indiscriminately, yes. you're going to get very different answers. Up to manual 54, and for several years, what we knew about gravel bed streams and sediment mixtures was very limited. Yeah. And what Gary Parker was able to do was bring all that physics, that mechanics, to be able to develop relations for sediment transport and, mm -hmm. and resistance law. And that's one of the things that I want to emphasize is that what the manual also does, which differs from the original, is makes it very clear the importance of having what we call constitutive laws. So in other words, the transport relation that you want to use and the resistance law that you want to use, they have to go in pairs. Okay, so can we start up? What is a resistance law? A resistance law relates friction, bed shear stresses to mean flow parameters like velocity. So we know that the bed shear stress scales with the square of the velocity of the flow. So then we need like a friction coefficient that multiplies that. Where do we get the friction coefficient? we get it from integrating a velocity distribution. But that velocity distribution needs to hold for rivers. So we know a whole lot from fluid mechanics about the velocity distribution in turbulent boundary layer, boundary layer flows and how it goes. And we know about the logarithmic law and we have made great progress in relating all that to a certain roughness. And we try to tie that roughness at case of S to some sediment size yeah. that is on the, on the bottom. Those are the things that we have in the manual. So we need a resistance law that can tell us, well, based on the roughness that you have on the bottom, this is going to be the shear because that shear that the flow is putting on the bottom 
at the same time, the flow is receiving the same shear in the opposite direction. Which is why you spend the first few pages of your chapter walking through the right. different resistance laws. But then for all of that, we need some kind of friction law, mm-hmm. some kind of resistance law that goes with it. Which is kind of the empiricism, you know, because the equations of motion are more pure physics. Yes. And we know from where they come, they come from conservation of right. mass, conservation of momentum, and conservation of energy. But to close those equations, you need some empirical equations. And so your friction laws, that's your constitutive theory. Right. The first degree of empiricism comes through the resistance to flow, friction, and how do you characterize that friction? So when we look at flow in pipes, oh, we got that pat down. That's right. We know that people have done a lot of work. We have the Moody diagram. We know that there is a Darcy Weisbach friction coefficient. We know that Nikuratze did a lot of work. He glued all the sand particles right. to a pipes. He did all these experiments. That must have been quite a lab to be involved in. <laughs> yeah, that, that was quite a lab, yes. Yeah. So we have all that, but even though we can use a good deal of that, and we have been using it, there are other challenges that come across when we go to a real stream or a real river. The idealized case of Nicolás roughness is not out there anymore. No. So now we have to deal with that KS is not exactly the diameter of the sand or the equivalent diameter right. of the sand that Nicolás used in the experiments. It's probably proportional to the D90, you know, mm-hmm. to the coarser material. Right. How do we go from all that knowledge about friction in pipes, also in canals, you know, mm-hmm. with fixed boundaries and, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of work. Professor Ben Yen here at the University of Illinois, he spent his academic life looking at flow resistance, looking at Manning Zen, how to connect Manning Zen to Darcy Weisbach, mm-hmm. what are the implications of that, the work of Strickler, and the work of many, many, many people that try to look at friction, but we're still talking about a fixed bed channel, right? Mm. So now, when we look to a movable bed channel, which is what we usually do, now that boundary is moving. So besides having that skin friction or grain friction associated with the size of the material that you have on the bottom, well, now you have a boundary that can deform, and now we begin to have ripples and we begin to have bed forms so it's a different ball game. And now you have multiple scales of roughness. Now you have multiple scales of roughness. And all that roughness, which is dynamic now, all that roughness is dynamic and is associated with the flow parameters. But also now you have the potential for sediment transport because the boundary is deforming because the sediment on the boundary is being entrained into motion. It might go on as bellowed, you know, move close to the bottom or it might go into suspension. But now we need another set of equations to figure out how much of a sediment are we moving, what are the limits of how much the flow can move Mm -hmm. for a certain set of conditions. So even for a uniform, steady flow, we have to make simplifications. You know, all the friction laws that we use, they were developed for steady, uniform flow. So when you use any other cause, you know, you use HERRAS, Mm -hmm. you are one of the experts on HERRAS, well, when you calculate friction at a particular cross-section, at a particular location, well, you are using an equation that was developed for uniform flow, right. you know, Manny's equation, to calculate locally what is the friction slope or the energy slope at that particular location. Well, yeah, you are assuming, we all do that, that the flow is locally uniform. Well, the flow, we know that is not locally uniform. That's right. And if it's an unsteady flow, it's going to depart from that. So we have to make these simplifications because otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't be solving anything. But it's important to know, in the case of sediment, what is the role of the roughness? Because the roughness plays two roles. One is related to the friction that opposes the flow, but also comes into play on the shear stresses yes. that are realized on the boundary that also affect or control sediment erosion, sediment transport. So we need to have things that are going in pairs. So we can't just have a menu of sediment transport equations. We have to have a menu of sediment transport equations, but each one of those, it has its own caveats as to what is the, the right resistance relation for the type of analysis that we need to do. It's remarkable to me how for Marcelo, science never seems to be disembodied. It's never just principles or data. It's always a story. It's a story about people. 
The names surrounding the discoveries aren't just perfunctory citations, but characters in a multi-generational story that we are invited into. And I guess that's kind of the point of this project. So I talked to Marcelo for most of the morning about EM110. And by the time we wrapped up, I realized that we'd spent that whole time talking about other people's science. I had yet to ask him about his. So he generously agreed to a second recording to talk about some of his work, including his handbook chapters on sediment mechanics and sedimentation hazards, and some of the best recent work I've seen on a remarkable and underrated process called the Boulet Effect. So in the next episode, we'll run the second half of this conversation with Dr. Garcia. This is the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, which is funded by the CORE's Regional Sediment Management Program with editing, mixing, and music by Mike Loretto. These are informal conversations, and the views expressed do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or the centers or institutions of the guests or host. I'm Stanford Gibson, the Sediment Specialist at HEC. Thanks for listening.